Today Breakfast. Hello and welcome. Look at this little bonus episode popping up in your feeds. Um, your boys Matt and Alex here. And this is our full chat with author and historian Rutger Bregman, who joined us on the show. We had such a good long chat. Um, it did get a couple of nips and tucks for our all-day breakfast uh, episode. Oh, but you, we took, we carved <laughs> off half the turkey just to make sure it fit in. I mean, we, we did have a solid, solid chat with him. And, and I did try to put some leftovers in the fridge the other day and had to do a couple of carves just to squash it in the Tupperware. Yeah, it was rough. But, um, but I mean, you, you'll hear in this interview that we truly feel like you could talk to Rudger for, you know, hours upon hours. I want to get be... to Houghton in the Netherlands and go and have a beer with him and his historian mates. Yeah, they'd have <laughs> some, uh, they'd certainly have some stories. Yeah, absolutely. So, really nice um, dude. And um, yeah, really, really interesting chat about uh, the goodness of humans, what's ha- happening currently in the world, what's happened historically in the world. Uh, it's well worth listening to the full thing. So I uh, hope you enjoy this little special bonus app. Now, Matt, in a world of pandemics, in social unrest, um, one of the things that could be difficult to wrap your head around is the ultimate kindness of humans when things are going on, particularly when the aisles of Australian supermarkets are suddenly devoid of toilet paper. But a gentleman has uh, just put out a new book, which uh, is a hopeful history of humankind. It is called Humankind. His name is Rutger Bregman, and he joins us now from Houghton in the Netherlands. Hello, Rutger. Hi there. Thank you so much for having a chat to us, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I mean, you're no stranger to Australia. You've been here before. What was your uh, last Mm -hmm. experience in Australia like? Well, it was uh, pretty wonderful, and it was uh, very useful for the research for my book as well. Uh, In 2017, I I did a short book tour around my previous book, Utopia for Realists, which is about all kinds of crazy ideas that may actually become reality in the future. For (laughs) example, giving everyone free money, universal basic income to completely eradicate poverty. (laughs) Uh, but then I realized that actually, if you believe in these ideas, then you also believe that most people can actually be trusted, that they won't waste this kind of money on drugs or alcohol or watch Netflix all day. So I realized I had to go a little bit deeper and actually make the case that, yes, most people are pretty decent. So, uh, yeah, I, I managed to do some research for the book in Australia as well. Well, that's one of one of the things I I came across first was this story of the mm-hmm. real Lord of the Flies, uh, the, the very mm-hmm. famous novel that shows about some shipwrecked boys who descend into chaos trying to, uh, ha- with no rules and just themselves on an island. You wanted to find a story where uh, if that had actually happened and what did happen uh, that wasn't fictional and you managed to find that in Australia, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was a really extraordinary thing to find, you know, this hugely famous novel that millions of kids around the globe were basically forced to read <laughs> in school. Were you forced to read it? Uh, well, I'm the kind of... <laughs> it, it's in the Netherlands, it's not that famous. So I guess I was just curious and read it on my own when I was 16 or 17. But I do remember feeling quite depressed afterwards and having this feeling like, huh, well, maybe this is what kids are really like, you know, where they, they end up on this island and they turn into savages. And at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead. Now, Spoiler alert. Uh, I wondered yes. whether it had ever really happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I did find this one example in 1965 that six kids in Tonga, you know, this island group in the Pacific Ocean, were also part of a Anglican boarding school, were bored with school. They didn't like the school meals. They thought, you know what, we're going to go on an adventure. Uh, they stole a boat. They ended up in a storm, drifted for eight days, shipwrecked on this island, and survived for 50 months and are still the best of friends today. 
It's quite incredible. And you got that, to meet yeah. uh, one of the boys and the, the captain who actually rescued him, who was Australian. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, rescue them. These boys didn't really need rescuing. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they like to go home. But when he found them on the island, they had, you know, created this small civilization where they were just... Uh, they had, you know, a badminton core. They had created their own gym with their own curious weights, you know, that they were using. Uh, they worked in teams. Um, they probably had a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, all, they would have had. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's a truly incredible story. And I mean, it's, 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 it happens, at, well, you retell it at the beginning towards the beginning of your book, which then just goes on to explore so much into the, I guess, the positive side of humanity. I, I, mm-hmm. It made me feel positive, which was a surprise <laughs> because I have to say, yeah, yeah, honestly, yeah. I have I have always been one of the people who sort of would think, um, well, actually, can you describe what, what's the theory, the veneer theory mm-hmm. in that, you know, everything goes to chaos? Sure. I've, I've believed in that. Well, I used to have a much more cynical view of human nature as well. I mean, I studied history and, you know, you don't <laughs> become very hopeful. Mostly, often history is just war, war, and then to spice things up a little bit more, war, war, war. And then when there's no war, <laughs> we call it the interbellum, right? The, this, the period in between sure. wars. So um, placeholder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's a really old theory within Western culture that says that civilization is only a thin veneer, right? It's just a thin layer. And that when something small happens, our circumstances change a, a little bit, whether it's a, a crisis like we're in right now, a pandemic or a natural disaster or well, you name it, that we suddenly reveal our true selves and that we show that deep down we're just these selfish animals, these savages. Um, This idea comes back again and again in our culture. You know, you already find it among the Asian Greeks, you find it in Christianity, the notion that we're all sinners, you find it with the Enlightenment philosophers, you find it in our literature, right? Lord of the Flies, another expression of this veneer theory. Or even the TV recently of looters in America, you know? There's protests and people grabbing shoes from Foot Locker. Yeah, it comes back again and again and again, and always, News media try try to focus on that as well. So if you watch a lot of the news, you'll become quite cynical and pessimistic. There's a term for this in psychology, actually. They call it mean world syndrome. That, yeah, you just become a little bit depressed of all of that. Uh, And the reason I wrote this book is that there's just so much evidence that's been gathered in the past 15 to 20 years from scientists from so many diverse disciplines who show that it's really wrong. You know, we're not angels, clearly not. We're capable of pretty horrible things. But what human beings do, especially in times of crisis, is we pull together and um, we've really evolved to work together and to cooperate. And that is our secret superpower. Yeah, it's it's interesting reading your book, finding that the, when we used to do that, when we were quite nomadic tribes and we'd walk around, there was no sense of ownership. But as soon as farms came out, we said, this land is ours now. Yeah. We own this. Things started to get a little bit more... Um, a bit, bit more conflict coming in and a, a bit that greed sort of started propagating and things just sort of descended from there. Yeah, I, I guess I used to believe and many people are still taught this in school today that back in our hunter-gathering days, we lived these lives that were nasty, brutish and short as the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes uh, put it and that we were these, yeah, these brute savages basically and living these very violent and horrible existences. But... It's obviously, I mean, it's obviously very hard to know what life really was like 30, 40,000 years ago. But if you look at the latest evidence we have from anthropology and archaeology, 
you arrive at a very different picture where you actually see that these nomadic and together tribes, they have quite egalitarian societies, they have a relaxed lifestyle, you know, a bit of exercise, a very diet, a bit of vegetables, you know, fruit and meat. Uh, they have a working week of around 20, 30 hours a week, uh, quite peaceful as well, right? Uh, war really seemed to have had a beginning and uh, it all started when we settled down and we became city dwellers and farmers. So you ar arrive at this very different picture of the shape of our history than uh, you know what they taught me in school. Okay, so Rutger, I mean, you do make a compelling argument for the basic nature of human kindness and the want to be kind. And I wondered, you know, reading the book, I thought well, you've, there's so many examples that you've given of the kindness of human nature. What did you come across that made you actually question whether, you know, you were on the right path or not? Mm -hmm. Was there any sort of studies that you thought, oh, this is making me wonder whether <laughs> maybe I'm, <laughs> I've well, gone down the wrong, the wrong track? The big question that hangs over a book like this is obviously, okay, so if human beings have really evolved to be friendly and if we really should believe in this concept that biologists talk about, which is survival of the friendliest, right? That for millennia was actually <laughs> the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation, then how do you explain wars? How do you explain ethnic cleansing? How do you explain genocides and the Holocaust? How's that ever? Mm -hmm. It only becomes more difficult to explain. Now, it's obviously, you know, hard to get a, give a short summary in a, uh, of a couple, <laughs> a couple of minutes. It's obviously not possible. But I do think there's an important connection between, on the one hand, our friendliness, and on the other hand, our really nasty behavior as well. Because if you think about it, so often we do the most horrible things in the name of friendship and in the name of loyalty and in the name of comradeship mm. that we find it hard to go against the group and against the status quo. But yeah, we just want to be part of our own group and then you get this in-group, out-group dynamic. Um, so I think that being basically decent or being basically friendly is not always the same as being a good person. Actually, a lot of good people throughout history have been rather nasty and unfriendly. And sometimes that's exactly the right thing to do. And it's people's intentions. I, mean, I think it was uh, someone in America, they had, uh, like they were talking about prisoners that they'd taken in, in, the, in the war in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And they, someone mentioned, opened their eyes by saying, um, you know, you've seen Star Wars. To us, America is the Death Star. Like you are the yeah, big, yeah. you know, global elite thing and we're the, you know, little, the rebellion trying to fight against it, no matter whether judging by our own morals, they are correct. They think that they are doing the right yeah. thing in that side of things. Yeah. And so we're at the core of it, I guess, that is their um, their intentions are good. But there are a couple of things, Rutger, that we thought could poke holes in your arguments. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I was moving a table the other day, put my hand in chewing gum under the table. Why? <laughs> if people are good, would they just ditch their chewy under my table? <laughs> You know, it's, it was filled with the stuff. So many. <laughs> what, do you, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a wonderful question. You know, people sometimes ask me in the Netherlands where uh, where everyone's on bikes. If I if I still lock my bicycle, and then oh, I say yeah, yeah. And, and then I answer yes, I still lock him, and then see, you know, you're full of shit. You know, you don't actually. Say. But the thing is, a, a very small group of nasty, chewy gum criminals. And, and yep. <laughs> bicycle stealers can cause a lot of damage, you know? You only need like 1% of the population who leaves chewing gum everywhere and then <laughs> you'll end up in this situation. 
I think that in general we can say that evil is stronger than good. It simply is. It makes a stronger impression on us. Uh, mm. Psychologists call this the negativity bias. We just our brain focuses more on the bad stuff than on the good stuff. But the good the good news is that is that often the good is in the majority, right? The vast majority of people don't leave their chewing gum underneath your table <laughs> or will not steal your bicycle. But then, yeah, the, the, the small minority can cause a lot of damage. I guess uh, like you also mentioned in your book as well where it's like you, you'll you only remember the time it happens, Daiso, that where the chewing gum is there. You'll never put your hand under all the tables <laughs> and table. be like, oh, another clean table, <laughs> yay. Yeah. Well, it's like but, um, I do. I don't have a passcode <laughs> on my phone as well because I... I, I guess that it's more likely someone who's nice will pick it up yeah. and just easily find my number mm, and get it no, back No, but to trust me. is the water we swim in. And this is exactly the reason why professional con artists can do their job because they, mm. they basically work with this. Uh, in sciences, it's called truth default bias. Instinctively, intuitively, when people tell something to each other, they just believe each other. And just imagine a society where we wouldn't, where every single time we just... Do not trust each other. Or imagine you're at the dinner table and someone says, you know, please pass me the salt. And you're like, yeah, sure. Let me draw up a contract and talk to my lawyer. You know, that would be <laughs> very ineffective society. So trust actually believing other people, even when you don't have, you know, the definitive ev evidence that you can actually believe the other person is way more efficient. And it is, ha has helped us as a species to cooperate on a skill that no other species in the whole animal kingdom can. Speaking on uh, what Alex was just talking about before, you mentioned before you joined us on uh, this chat, we were just talking about one of our favorite things in the book, which is the quote towards the very beginning. It mm -hmm. wasn't, it's not one of your quotes. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember exactly who it uh, was. Rebecca Solnitz. Yeah, yeah, that's right. From and a can book you called say, A Paradise Built in Hell. Yeah. Can you say the, um, can you say the quote, Dyson? Absolutely. It is that elite panic comes from powerful people who see all humanity in their own image, hmm. which is interesting, interesting, because, yeah, you are talking about how people in power fear uprising because they fear that other people have just as, are just as ruthless as they are, yeah. which isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. The longer summary of my book, <laughs> so the short summary would be most people are pretty decent, and then a little bit longer would be, yeah, but power corrupts. Um, and this is the <laughs> dynamic that we see time and time again. I think we see it on full display in America right now with these protests is where those in power, when they think about human nature, they look in the mirror and they think, hey, people are probably just as selfish and maybe will behave just like savages, just like we would behave. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, then they respond with violence, which they call law and order and uh yeah, then everything goes downhill from there. That's what you see a lot in these, uh, in the response of, to natural disasters. So sociologists have gathered now more than 700 case studies of what happens after, uh, you know, an earthquake or a tsunami. And what they find is that you get this explosion of cooperation, people from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old, all working together. But then the news starts reporting on all these unverified rumors of looting and plundering then elites become obsessed with that and they send in the military and the police who start shooting at innocent people. We've got many examples of that. And this is indeed what Rebecca Solnit calls elite panic, where they look at humanity and they look in the mirror. That's interesting. That reminds me of the study that says CEOs and um, psychopaths have a remarkably similar profile, yeah. which is interesting. I'm not sure if you've seen the same thing, Rutger, yes. can explain it better than me. But yeah, it seems people who are willing to sort of 
you know, scramble their way to the top might uh, end up there. But yeah, as you yeah. say, look in the mirror and think everyone else is similar. It's a really indictment of the society we have created because if you look at these nomadic and together tribes, obviously they had leaders. But we know from ethnographic field reports that in these kind of societies, humbleness is really the prerequisite if you want you know, to rise to a position of power. So, for example, imagine you're a great hunter. What do you do? Um, you have had a great, you know, you've catched something great. You come back to the camp uh, with a yep. big deer or gazelle or something like that, and you don't say anything. I'm a wildebeest hunter, but <laughs> yeah. yep, I can, I can put myself in the mindset. There you go. Well... <laughs> If you're in this kind of a society, you don't do anything. You just, you'll just sit quietly at the fire and then someone comes up to you and asks you, well, did you catch anything today? And you're like, no, no, not really. And then that person would know, you know, tonight is going to be where I have a great dinner. So it's, it's, I mean, imagine Donald Trump in prehistory. He wouldn't have survived for long. People wouldn't have liked him. <laughs> they would have expelled him and he would have died alone. Because, you know, back then you needed to collect friends if you wanted to survive. And, and on average, right. people don't like tend to like narcissists and psychopaths. Well, on Everest, you just got to throw out your thermometers and then you, it wouldn't be cold because you wouldn't be able to say <laughs> what temperature it is. <laughs> but I mean, this is, this is the important thing. Now we have created a society where it often seems to be survival of the shameless. Right? Where the people who mm. just don't blush anymore, which is, by the way, actually a unique human ability, you know, the fact that we can blush, involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else. But the idea of our prime ministers in, in the UK or the Netherlands or, or, or Australia or wherever blushing, I mean, or the idea of Trump blushing, I mean, it's, I, I have no idea what that would look like. <laughs> You're well, absolutely right. Bringing back shame. There's no, there's no, not as much shame in politics anymore. And I can't imagine. Yeah, and the people are getting caught out in things, and they just don't care. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, that's yeah. breaking the system. Yeah, <laughs> we uh, we're seeing some some movement from our politicians at the moment, Rook, uh, with regards to their stance on university fees mm -hmm. uh, for arts and humanitarian style courses. They're saying they're not. Uh, necessarily job ready mm -hmm. and therefore uh, some of the fees are doubling really um de-incentivizing the arts and humanities <laughs> so it's quite yeah. interesting yourself as a historian <laughs> okay so if you, you can't, if, if you can't see rutger right now uh his hand is thoroughly face planted onto his uh into, onto his palm yeah. His, yeah you know one of the great tragedies of our our modern society is that so many people are in jobs that they consider pointless, that they consider absolutely useless. We have a scientific term for this. It's called a bullshit job. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> the right definition, the concept is- that is, Latin or what is that? Is that? <laughs> well, the concept is from David Graeber, an anthropologist, and he gives this very smart definition. He says that a bullshit job is a job where the person who has this job says, it's probably not valuable at all. You know, people don't mind if I'll stop working, if I'll go on strike, no one will notice. And the interesting thing is that we now have some empirical research on who are these people who have these bullshit jobs. There's been a recent big study by two Dutch economists and, uh, you know, they looked at a data set of uh, more than 40 countries and they found that in modern economies, around 25% of the workforce thinks his or her own job is useless. Um, mm. Then you look at these jobs and turns out we're not talking about teachers here or nurses or garbage collectors or whatever. Um, but we're talking about people with wonderful LinkedIn profiles who went to great universities and studied, I don't know, business administration, human resource, blah, blah, something like that. 
And then they ended up in jobs in finance or in marketing or uh, management, uh, and they earn great salaries. But at the end of the day, if you give them a beer or maybe two, then they'll admit to you that their job is absolutely useless and no one will care if they'll go on strike. And they're just writing reports no one's ever going to read or, or, or you know, sending emails to people they don't like. Uh, and that is the real tragedy of our time, you know, the extraordinary waste of talent. It's not that people are, I don't know, studying too much history or anthropology. And I'm not saying that historians are all that valuable. I mean, uh, but at least we like what we do and we're enjoying it, right? And we can't yeah. say that of so many of these people who are in these bureaucratic bullshit jobs. One final thing that's really interesting from this study is that actually turns out that are, there are four times as many bullshit jobs in the private sector as in the public sector. You know, the complete opposite of what we've always been told. Because, you know, in the public sector, we find a lot of healthcare and education, which is really important, obviously. Uh, but then, yeah, in the private sector, there seems to be much more uh, of a waste of talent going on. Now, I think that's what we've got to be talking about. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because the government has just cut $85 million from our uh, public broadcaster as well this week, Rutger. Yeah. So um, seems like they go taking a different angle to you uh, when it comes <laughs> to uh, the application of funds. But uh, you're absolutely right. We could talk um, about this. It's difficult to sum up not only in a, a couple of sentences, but in a little interview with us as well. So we should let you go. Thank you very much for oh. uh, having a chat to us. Matt, you've got another question for One me. more quickly. I do okay. want to hear what's your, what's, um, your prediction Trump 2020, is he staying? Is he going? What do you think? <laughs> okay, so I think that if you have an honest look at the polls right now, I mean, it's it's it looks really bad for him. So, but yeah, there's this there's this saying from a, a British prime minister in the 50s who was asked by a, a journalist what he was most afraid of, Harold Macmillan, uh, this prime minister's name was, and he said, "Events, my dear boy, events." just stuff happening that will change everything. So yeah, I'm, I'm still very scared of, of events that may change everything. Yeah, yeah goodness Amazing. gracious. Um, you're not going to be getting on Fox News and uh, talking to a few people again. I'm like, It <laughs> was interesting reading now. your book, Rutka, because <laughs> I, I read your book and I'm like, this is amazing. We need to get Rutka on the on the show. Then realized that I'd watched your viral video of talking to Cock Tucker Carlson on Fox News where he just gave you an absolute serve. We've got a bit of audio of it here. You're a millionaire funded by billionaires and that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues. Why don't you go yourself, you tiny brain, and I hope this gets picked up, because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too f***ing annoying for me. Uh, you can't handle the criticism, can you? <laughs> I watched that a couple of years ago, I think that happened, didn't it, Rutger? And I was so impressed by it because you were so calm in that situation. And like, on genuine question, how do you remain calm and talking in these sort of quite agitative situations with people? Well, if I would have known that it would have gone viral and... I don't know, 20 or 30 million people would have watched it. I wouldn't have stayed calm like that. So <laughs> <laughs> you have to imagine, it was the middle of the night in Amsterdam. It was 2 a.m. Uh, it was 8 p.m. in the U.S. when they were recording it. And I didn't think they were going to air it anyway. And I didn't know that the producer in Amsterdam was filming it with his iPhone. So I thought that w I was just having a good time, you know, on my own with Tucker. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and I thought it I thought it was really hilarious to be honest because he completely lost it and I thought you know I'm gonna have a good story when I when I'll tell my colleagues and my friends about this on on Friday when we're gonna go for drinks you know they're, they're not gonna believe me uh, so 
But then it turns out that the producer was filming it all, and then, uh, yeah, boom. <laughs> the rest well, is history. <laughs> we're, thank, we're, we're very thankful that, uh, yeah, our, today's interview didn't uh, turn out the same. <laughs> Alex and I keeping our cool. <laughs> you being very kind to us. Um, it's a human kindness after all. It is, <laughs> yeah. it is your, our default one. Thank you very much, Rutger. And, yeah, make sure that you uh, have a look at Rutger's book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. Uh, well worth a read. Uh, thank you so much, Rutger. Hopefully we get to talk to you again um, uh, at another time in the future. Thanks for having me, guys.